Welcome to the Higher Ed Demand Gen Podcast, helping higher education marketing leaders share knowledge about learning, strategies, and tactics that are relevant today. See what you can learn today by listening to one of our episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Higher Ed Demand Gen Podcast, hosted by Concept3D. We have a quick message from our sponsors. So if your school needs an interactive map, virtual tour, or centralized events calendar, please reach out to concept3d.com. Thank you. My name is Shiro, and I will be your host today. I'm speaking from our lovely mountain home in Silverthorn, Colorado, and I am very, very excited to introduce our guest today, Katie Grinnell. She is the accessibility strategist at Anthology and also an adjunct professor at Buffalo State College. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Thank you, Shiro. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. And I love asking all our guests this, so uh, I will start with an icebreaker on Mm -hmm. what do you love about higher ed? Okay, so I would say it's likely the, the freedom and the autonomy to teach more challenging concepts or isms Um, like ableism, racism, things like that, and to take it into a different level. Um, So it makes me think particularly of a class that I took as an undergraduate student. I started my history degree um, actually in social studies education. I thought I was going to go and be a teacher for history. And then I took my first class as a college student taking an American history course. And it blew my mind in the best way possible. So it really made me think more about how I could potentially um, change the way that I teach and reach a different audience and really thinking about it within more abstract spaces. And so for me, it's really about that freedom to be able to use things like popular, you know, music or movies or, you know, literature to use that as a different medium to talk about certain types of themes and, and teach those themes. So I would say for sure, it's the freedom to really be able to explore some of those different types of, you know, content items to to push students, um, to also help them to kind of bring it back to how it connects to them. That was my very long-winded answer. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. It creates a great transition for, for me. So, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your story, which you started to tell uh, in your journey into, you know, why... Why accessibility? Why is this a passion for you? Mm-hmm. I know it's not just, you know, your job. It's something you're passionate about. So I'd love for you mm-hmm. to uh, go into detail there. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's naturally a, a, a winding and serpentine story. Um, so first and foremost, I identify as disabled. I have um, both visible and invisible disabilities. So for me, that has been a part of my life for for as long as I can remember. I was born um, with neuropathy in my legs, so I wear a brace, um, and the brace helps even out my foot, so I don't you know drag my foot and things like that. And that naturally led to other complications as well that you cannot visibly see. So there's always been this really weird juxtaposition of trying to manage that on my own, but then also. M- in a way, manage how the rest of the world, family and friends included, see me um, as an individual with a disability or multiple disabilities. Um, But as far as how I got into it as a career, um, when I started school, graduate school, I was going for my master's in history. And my my plan was to teach history. I was going to change the world 
my teaching history in college. And so I went for my PhD and I, instead of going into a history program, I went directly into an American studies program, which um, if you're not familiar, it's a pretty broad discipline and you essentially kind of pick your own ism or area, if you will. So like race, um, ethnicity, you know, um, I'd say, you know, social, socioeconomic, you know, different types of areas um, that you're interested in. And you're really kind of focusing on a, a different type of history or things like that. So I started it in looking at American popular music. And about, I would say, two semesters into my Ph.D. program, I learned about disability studies as an academic discipline. Cheryl, I had no idea that this even existed. So it was it was life altering because it led me in a different direction career wise, but it also helped me kind of figure out and learn how to, you know, conceive of myself as a disabled person in a strong and empowering way. Um, and that's a continuous, you know, I would say conversation that and relationship that I have or aspect of myself that I'm constantly working on. Um, but it really was able to open up so many different doors for me. And so from there, you know, I finished school and I had been adjuncting at multiple different, you know, institutions near Buffalo, New York, which is where I'm based. And I started working for um, what was then called Campus Labs, now called Anthology. And I've been with Anthology, which is a higher ed tech company. I've been with the company for over six years. So it's about six and a half years um, and the most recent role that I am in now is the accessibility strategist. So what's phenomenal with this role is I actually get to use a lot of what I learned in graduate school in the work that I do on a daily basis with our clients that have our product called Ally. So Ally is an accessibility tool, and that is what I consult on. So it's been a really weird winding road, um, but I guess, you know, in, in looking back on it retrospectively, it, it should have, it needed to happen that way. So I could, it could bring me to this, you know, space in my life now. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, yeah, an yeah. incredible journey. That's having a moment where you really changed directions is, is you know, it's, it's life-changing. And so that's a yeah. very good insight. I'm curious, you know, we, in our previous intro discussion, we talked a lot about accessibility, right? And there need to be a part of the universal design of higher education. We feel mm -hmm. like a lot of schools and quite frankly, the world is it's just a checkbox. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the strong points of view we have and I have is that, you know, websites, institutions, schools, businesses can really be leading with accessibility and creating that as a part of their universal design. And I know you have some some comments around that as well. What are your thoughts on really improving that as, as a part of the fundamental design of education? Yeah, so this is a great question, Shiro. I think first and foremost, what needs to happen is almost like a, a demystifying or debunking of this idea of accessibility or disability as something that we cannot talk about. Um, and that is probably one of the reasons why it's typically left out of those, you know, DEIB, so your diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging initiatives or conversations and efforts that you see within higher education in the U.S. It's, you know, very similar to some of the other um, social constructions. If we think about disability as, 
in a social construction standpoint, it's not so much about the actual impairment that the person has, it's how society views them and basically, you know, boxes them into a specific type of category or a, you know, identity, um, and then puts barriers up everywhere. So we want to break that, right? We want to demystify that. We want to debunk that. Talking about disability and accessibility is not bad. And I say that as somebody living with multiple disabilities, I would much rather, and in fact, I would openly invite anybody to ask me questions. Um, and if I don't want to answer it, I won't answer it. But for the most part, I want people to feel comfortable in engaging in that conversation to help break down, you know, the barrier to even talking about it in the first place. So hopefully it's with that that we're starting to see that it becomes a more natural and organic conversation and component in those larger conversations. Um, because it should not be a separate, you know, thing that we're thinking about or addressing. It needs to be integrated into every single aspect of universal design. And that that's not just in teaching and learning. It's not just in the physical logistics of an institution and how their campus is set up. It's also in their alumni outreach. It's also in their retention work. It's also in their you know, um, student success work as well. All those different types of initiatives. Accessibility is a part of every single component. Um, and so it needs to be more naturally kind of, you know, thread without, you know, these different types of um, efforts and institutions and departments um, in a way that isn't putting it on this, you know, in, into this separate space that it needs to be about accommodation, right? It's more equitable. Mm -hmm if it's something that's kind of naturally ingrained from the very beginning. Gotcha. And so really moving the conversation, what you, like you said, are from just accommodations to being equitable and, mm -hmm. and also creating a, a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. yeah. I can't, I don't remember the exact word you use, but to, to have those conversations to be more open mm -hmm. and transparent is, yeah. is one of the things you believe in. Yes. Gotcha. And real quick, just for vocabulary, since I think mm -hmm. I told you I had to do a quick Google search mm -hmm. on DEIB. I knew what DEI mm -hmm. was, but could you yep. tell us a little bit more about the B, the belonging part of it? Absolutely. Uh, and what, yeah, what it stands for, what it means? Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you asked this, Shiro. This is, um, I think this is a perfect example of, you know, aiming to be accessible and equitable in our language. So I'm glad you're asking. So uh, I would say probably about five, six years ago, maybe even longer, you know, before that, we started to see higher education coming up with these, um, you know, what I like to call alphabet soup, these different types of initiatives on campus. So it's really about promoting diversity, which is the D, equity, your E, I, inclusion, and then B, belonging. So um, this is typically thinking about how to make a campus and the learning environment, the teaching environment, more inclusive, more inviting of all different types of people, um, more diverse. So making sure we have representation coming from different types of groups, particularly those that are marginalized or have been historically marginalized. And also when we're thinking of belonging, that's so much about making it a safe space where people from um, all different backgrounds and coming from all different lived experiences feel safe to be able to voice their, you know, their opinions, their perspectives, to be themselves and to actually feel that they belong and they have a place there. So 
it's a hard thing to do, especially from a collective standpoint, to try to get everybody at an institution, you know, on that on that kind of page. So a lot of these different DEIB offices, um, and sometimes, you know, um, justice will also be one of the uh, the letters in that alphabet soup. We've seen that with some other institutions. Um, Typically, you know, we see all sorts of different programs and different types of trainings, you know, equity-based training, um, having more, you know, diverse, I would say, scholars and, and instructors that are a part of, you know, the institution. So there's a lot of different functions that it, that, that actual type of initiative has. But what typically is left out of it explicitly is accessibility. Um, and I mean, I have theories and ideas as to why, but I think it's that part right now, it's it's more so it, it's been that way for a long time. What can we do to move that forward um, and to have accessibility part of those different types of initiatives from the very beginning? I love that. And you know what? I was just thinking I met a digital accessibility specialist. I can't remember her exact title, but she they created a new role for digital accessibility in uh, the, the the justice department. I get, uh -huh. I think, I forget the exact name. Um, I'll pull it up in a bit. But yeah, she just was created a new role. And I think there's some movement into merging uh, in, within the DEIB or DEI uh, departments true. within schools. Uh -huh. But yeah, it's prime example of what I'm hearing because that position was just created and it, it didn't exist before. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. It, you know, a lot of schools have... Um, digital accessibility or accessibility specialists, and they are typically um, situated within the um, accessibility office or the disability services office. There's, you know, lots of schools have different names for that office. Mm -hmm. The office that would be in charge of providing accommodations um, for students that do disclose as having some type of disability. Um, so it's great to see, though, that there are positions like that that are extending beyond that space. It's not that they're not needed in that space. They are. Um, but there's other areas as well, um, in particular, marketing, mm -hmm. communication, things like that, that also really need to have, you know, those types of specialists to make sure that the content that they are disseminating and sharing with either prospective or current students, um, donors, right. alumni, that it's accessible. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. Uh, I am a marketer and I have a business hat on, you know, half of the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the belonging aspect of the DIB, the B, to really play a function in maybe student persistence or, you know, a student's ability to continue their education, which obviously has the business side, which is, you know, the student right. retention aspect. Mm -hmm. But do you think that that part that plays a role if you're really focusing more on belonging? Because I think statistically students with disabilities have a high dropout rate um, within the four years at a four-year institution and, and more. And so, you know, I'm just putting my business head a little bit. And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I, let's, let's think of it, you know, let's, let's come up with an example here. So let's say you are a student um, that is visually impaired and you go um, to access the website for the school that you're considering, you know, applying to or attending. Um, and you're using a screen reader if you are, for the most part, you know, for a lot of students that are um, visually impaired, you're using a screen reader. And if the screen reader is not able to actually access the website or it's not keyboard, you know, navigable, that is a red flag right there. So, I mean, how 
from that standpoint, if their very first interaction with the institution um, from a business standpoint, right, is the fact that they cannot actually access their website. I mean, for me, if that was the case for me, absolutely not. It's it's not even a, a question um, because if the very basic interface um, that is the website is not accessible. What what does that probably mean for you know learning content and things like that, or getting around campus in a safe um, manner? So, for sure, I, I think it's you know a lot of times the the idea of making sure that your content was accessible or thinking about things in a more accessible standpoint. Um, you know, it made business sense from a compliance standpoint. So it's like, oh, we don't want a lawsuit. So let's just make sure that we, you know, we, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's. But it's it's not just about compliance. So it's, and it's not just about accommodation. So if we think of it like, what is this ultimate trajectory and goal of like, what's the unicorn of accessibility? It's that marketers, that businesses are looking at this from a universal standpoint where they really do want to reach everybody. It's not just one specific type of person, right, with a disclosed or, you know, not disclosed disability. Um, so it's really, again, making sure that the content that you are creating is accessible in multiple different ways to multiple different learners and users um, on multiple different devices. That's another really big thing. You want to make sure that things are responsive if you're using a mobile device or a screen reader. Um, and I think especially from kind of a business standpoint, if you if you are failing to even um, have that kind of basic level of accessibility, um, I mean, that's 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 pretty, you know, problematic. Absolutely. And I think, <laughs> yes, I think we we touched on this in our introduction call and we actually uh, are conducting our own research here at Concept 3D on accessibility and digital accessibility. And we found a lot of uh, admin and faculty are not sure where to like find mm -hmm. or uh, send people or refer people to when it comes to a school's dedication mm -hmm. to accessibility. I almost guarantee you like most schools have somewhere where the student's dedication to accessibility, uh, both from a physical and digital standpoint are stated, but it's often hard to find. Is mm -hmm. that what you've also found in your experience? Yes. Um, so I would say, you know, from my experience as an instructor, um, that was something that I needed to kind of seek out on my own so that I was making sure I was including that information for my students. Um, I mean, every school is legally bound. They have to have an office like that you, to, to, to actually comply and adhere to, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act sections 504 and 508, you know, from the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Like those are the guiding, you know, pieces of legislation that determine how public institutions and private institutions are providing accommodation and access for students. Um, the thing that I have found is that, you know, unless it is you know, unless the, the instructor or the student is already familiar with that office, um, so perhaps they do need an accommodation and they've already been going there, it's it's something that everyone seems to kind of universally know is there, but it's not really openly discussed. And I don't know if that's necessarily because it's a taboo thing. It's more of the, 
the direct, you know, immediacy or relevancy. If someone doesn't use it, then they're not or they don't, you know, they're not good friends with or partners with somebody that is constantly needing or does need some type of accommodation. It just might not be in their, you know, at the forefront of their mind. So I think for what faculty really need to do um, is themselves to really learn about what types of accommodations the accessibility office at their institution involves and get mm -hmm. to know the people that work there. I mean, that's kind of the great thing is that it's, it's typically students that are going in and seeking those accommodations. But if faculty want to get more interested and um, learn more about the different types of you know, accommodations that are available, what the process looks like, perhaps they just want to know what can they do to better support their students, make an appointment at that office, go visit the office, email somebody that works there and ask for some suggestions. And from there, it's a matter of mm -hmm. making sure students are aware of that, right? So including that in their syllabi, um, putting, you know, a, a, a resource link on their, um, whichever LMS they use, so their learning management system, mm -hmm. if it's Blackboard, Canvas, et cetera, making sure that these places are, you know, visibly being called out so that students know where to go. It's not that a student couldn't necessarily just Google it and find it on their own, um, but it's providing that additional layer. I think that also speaks volumes of the commitment that individual faculty member would have to their student's accessibility. Right. And, you know, I was going to ask a question around, you know, how do you how do you create that culture around, you know, for the faculty and staff to to want to go do some of that research? But I think you answered it the next sentence, which is as educators, you know, they want to they should want to know more ways to support their students in the classroom, yeah. outside the mm -hmm. classroom, because mm -hmm. that is their job. And that is you know why they're right. probably in higher ed is they want to help these students and help mm -hmm. educate them. So, um, yeah. no, I, it, I, you answered my question before I was able to ask it. That's great. I meant to do that. And, you know, no, I, I didn't. You know, yeah. And we were talking a little bit, you know, about the classroom and how, you know, accessibility is also something lacking there. We talked a little bit about website, which, you know, when you first get introduced to the school, there's elements there around digital accessibility, the physical campus meeting accommodations, making sure all those resources are there. And then we talked a lot about, you know, as an educator, you have experience on the education side, the learning side. And I think you mentioned some gaps there are within accessibility and resources for each classroom, right? In each, uh -huh. each class. And uh -huh. um, I think one thing you mentioned was around like syllabus is not including accessibility options. You know, can you go into a little more detail there of what you're finding and what needs to change or where you think the direction is going right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're, we've definitely seen a pretty big movement um, around syllabus, I would say creation and um, formatting over the last five to 10 years. Um, we're starting to see a lot more of those DEIB initiatives kind of make their way into the syllabi. And I think that's needed and it's so helpful and incredible. Um, but I think this is one of those opportunities that, you know, faculty have to set the precedent that accessibility and diversity and inclusion and belonging and their students' well-being matters to them. And 
I say all of this is I know there's lots of memes and t-shirts that say it's on the syllabus. So I don't know if you've ever heard of this type of joke, Shiro, where especially among faculty, you know, students are continuously asking questions and the answer is already in the syllabus. And it's this, you know, it's this perception that students aren't reading the actual syllabus. And, you know, we can't control that. Um, no matter how, you know, aesthetically beautiful and snazzy and, um, you know, what have you, you know, that we make our syllabus, it doesn't mean we can determine or guarantee that every student will read it. So I like to, you know, and again, and I, it becomes kind of this like comical joke among faculty. Um, and I'm sure there is, there is, yes, there is some truth to it, but like, let's push that. And instead of just assuming the worst about our students, um, let's think about what else can we do from the very beginning to set that stage that they know that they are welcome and that you're going to do everything you can as the faculty member to make it an accessible and, you know, belonging and inclusive environment. So the first thing I always do is I always include an accessibility statement on my syllabus. So a lot of institutions sometimes or departments within the institution might determine what a faculty member should put as far as like a policy goes about accessibility in their syllabus. Um, so if I'm working at an institution that already has something like this, I really then just continue to add more color. Um, and I will talk about my individual commitment to accessibility in the class. And, you know, I will always have an open invitation for students to come talk to me if they have questions about, you know, digital accessibility um, or accessibility in general doesn't only need to be relegated to digital. So I think it's a lot of that type of language. It's really important. I think the other part too is it's it's also about, you know, setting clear, you know, expectations from the very beginning. Um, so one of the things that is also pretty common, especially when we think about first generation students, is the this idea of the hidden curriculum. Have you heard of this before, Shiro? No. No. Please, so please this explain. Is, yeah. Okay. So, um, so this is basically like different types of assumptions that um, a lot of you know faculty members and administrators make about students, assuming that they know certain things coming into college. So, like in other words, you know, the assumption that everyone knows to say, you know, in an email, right? As far as like email etiquette goes, to start with "dear professor" or "dear doctor." Um, and so it's part of that hidden curriculum where it's almost like these little, you know, you know, micro tests that you're assuming the student knows how to behave a certain way or how to conduct themselves a certain way. And especially for those that are coming, you know, if they're in, this is first generation and they don't have others to talk to about how to do these types of things, how would they know? So we want to debunk that. So that's one of the other things I think is really important in the syllabus is really being very clear of, you know, what mm -hmm. I expect. And if there is some confusion or, you know, if students are, you know, really just not sure how to do something, then take the time to demonstrate that in your class or demonstrate that based on how you as a faculty member, you know, communicate with them, um, you know, talk about when, you know, and how often you are checking your email so when they can expect a response, you know, if they have a question, should they email you or should they send a message through their learning management system? Like those different types of things that, 
not everybody is going to come into, you know, the, the college experience knowing, and we shouldn't expect that they do. Right. No, that makes uh -huh. perfect sense. And this whole topic on the, including the, the accessibility statement in the syllabus got me thinking, you know, if I'm a student, obviously there's a lot of students who don't know really what they want to major or study and, but there's usually at least aligned to a certain college, right? Um, yeah. If they want to go broad, they'll probably go arts and science, but I, I, I just thought of it another opportunity for adding this statement in is like at each college level or each college website, right? Like uh -huh. having like the college engineering school saying we all for all classes in digital screen readers and we have a commitment for this. Like uh -huh. Just having that information up top, I think, is a yeah. huge opportunity for admissions marketing, too, because they'll totally know that agree. all this all the all the classes below and, you know, of that parent are going to be accessible like right off the mm -hmm. bat and so yeah um absolutely. that was just something that made your syllabus idea got yeah. me thinking about yeah yeah and another thought is i mean with obviously the pandemic and obviously just you know digital tools increasing even before that a lot most classrooms and this is when i was in school obviously most of my classrooms have some integration with uh, lms or some sort of online tool or program but that's probably more ingrained than ever now now right mm -hmm. and so this focus yes. on the ability to take the curriculum of a class and have accessible options is more important than ever because mm -hmm. most classrooms have a digital component to it now that may or may not have been accessible in a few years ago yep absolutely and that's one of the neat things about the tool that i um that i really support at my work um or with my work at anthology is so Ally, it's A-L-L-Y. This is an accessibility tool and it does a couple different things based on the, the audience type. So for students, what it does is it offers alternative formats for different types of content items. So as an example, mm -hmm. let's say you have, you know, I, I write my syllabus for my students. I upload it to Blackboard, which is the learning management system we use. And um, it's, it's originally formatted as a Word document. But let's say I have a student that needs it as a Braille-ready file format because they use refreshable Braille display. Well, they can download it as, uh, as the specific type of format that they need. Or let's say um, they are using a screen reader um, or any other type of you know, text-to-speech functionality and they need to be able to have a tagged PDF, right? So when you tag a PDF, mm -hmm. it means you're you're providing these different types of tags or identification labels, if you will, to different parts of a of a document. So like the title, the heading, you know, right. begin paragraph. So text to speech will read it aloud for that. So while yes, when we think about you know Ally and how it offers these alternative formats for specific types of learners. It also goes beyond that in a more universal design or universal design for learning standpoint in that, yes, it directly benefits our students that do disclose and have a disability and are seeking some type of accommodation, but it also helps all other types of learners, right? So if you can take a article that you need to read for a class and you can convert it to an audio format. And on your way, driving to school or driving to work or folding laundry um, or Absolutely. doing dishes at night, you can listen to that. That's incredible. So really, again, it's it's beneficial for all. Maybe perhaps it was originally you know, designed <clears throat> to address 
a particular type of impairment and disability, um, but it really then goes above and beyond that if we're looking at it from that universal design standpoint. I love that. And, you know, I, I use the same thing. Um, I have to review some of the content that we create as a marketing team. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, the accessibility options turned on my iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so I will actually go on a walk and I'll listen to the document because I'm mm-hmm. a better listener than I'm a, a reader. And same. so that's how I consume some of the content so that, mm-hmm. you know, when I sit down at my desk and I need to make edits to to the copy, now I've already listened to it once instead of having to read it twice. And so, um, yeah, it's, I use the same functionality and I, mm-hmm. it, it's definitely helpful. And, you know, I love this topic, you know, digital accessibility, like we have to learn, you know, from especially like a business organization perspective that it's not just helpful for people with disabilities, but mm-hmm. I think we talked about this, right. It's, it's helpful for everyone. It can be helpful for yes. everyone. I think there's a statistic that Gen Z, like the amount of, Gen Z um, that uses closed captions on like shows. They there was like a national survey they got posted mm-hmm. was much much higher than like latter yeah. generations because they found right. that it's a much be- better way to consume and understand what's going on and on TV mm-hmm. or you know on Netflix. Yeah, right. I absolutely. I mean, think of some of the instances where you're looking at something on your phone but you can't turn the volume on. Right. Um, so if you're waiting in a doctor's office or, you know, Mm. you're, you're laying next to your, your kiddo that is trying to fall asleep and you also want to entertain yourself, um, and you're watching a video on TikTok or Facebook or what have you, Netflix, you know, movie or show, and you can use the captions, um, and still actually retain and, and actually engage with the content. I mean, again, while yes, it was specifically designed for certain types of users, it really then ends up being beneficial um, and impactful for all. So that's that's the nice thing about it is really thinking about having strong, digitally accessible content. Um, it's again, it opens the door, it levels the playing field, it makes it more accessible and equitable for every single type of user and every single type of learner. Absolutely. Oh, I love yeah. that. It's I think mm-hmm. there's a strong business case for that too, which maybe mm-hmm. helps yes, you know drive drive more accessibility. I have to mm-hmm. always look at things, you know, two-sided. So yeah, um, absolutely. appreciate yeah, you being transparent important. with that. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we talked about that I also wanted to touch on is, you know, how do we create this uh, continuous feedback loop to, you know, to create more belonging and inclusion and DEIB as a whole? And I think one thing we both shared and we have heard is, you know, really sharing more uh, stories of success uh-huh. uh, from students with disabilities and acknowledging those students. Um, I've, mm-hmm. I've heard it from a friend, uh, Ryan Wilson, as well as he mentioned, there was a lack of that when he first entered college, uh, you know, many years ago. And so mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was a great topic. Are you hearing, seeing, or experiencing the same issues as well? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a hard, well, I should say, I think we've come a long way, like higher education has come a long way in this type of, you know, Mm -hmm. conversation, but it is still, um, it's still so ingrained in our society to, to not, to walk around something that's awkward or uncomfortable. Um, And that can be disability, that can be race, you know, that can be sexism. There's, there's, it's any of those individual social constructions, I would say. Um, with disability, it's, you know, especially right now, I think a lot of people are even more 
aware of the, the terminology that we use. And I think that that's important, but a part of that too is also, you know, making sure that we are making it an environment that people can ask questions if they genuinely want to learn more, right? So if, you know, there's a really good example um, right now is there's these two different models, Shiro, of um, language around, um, I would say, identity and disability. So you have person first language and then you have identity first language. So within the disabled community and then with, you know, within, um, you know, academia, you have these two different models of how people identify themselves as being disabled. So if it's person first, you are, um, you know, you are a person with a disability. All right. So it's putting the person first, if that makes sense. You are a person with multiple sclerosis. If it's identity first, you are, you know, I would say I am a disabled woman. Or I would say um, that I, you know, I suffer. No, I don't, I shouldn't say suffer. I do suffer, but I try not to use that language all the time. But I actually do have chronic migraine, which is a disease, right? Um, so it's, there's two different models. And you see this a lot in situations, conversations, initiatives, and things like that, where there's a lot of concern. And it's understandable that you're going to offend somebody. So in an instance like this, and I bring this up on purpose because I think these models are critical. It says a lot about empowerment and accountability and autonomy of the individual and how they choose to, you know, have people address them and how they address themselves. Um, but we also want to make sure that people are feeling comfortable to ask those questions. So in that instance, you know, if an instance comes about and you're in a conversation with somebody and you're not really sure if they prefer that identity first or person first, what I would do is ask. I would say, you know, please tell me, how do you prefer to be called? Um, you know, what is your preferred way of referring to yourself so that I can honor that and respect that? But I'm also interested in in growing and learning. So I think it's, it's tough, Shiro, in that, you know, to help break down some of these, you know, silos and barriers and things like that. The person that wants to do that really needs to be willing to learn. And it might mean that they're going to get uncomfortable and that's okay, right? That's, we're all humans. It's not as though everything we do every day is pure comfort. Um, so it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's an ongoing commitment, just like digital accessibility. You know, it's, making sure we're using inclusive language and we're asking, you know, for people's opinions and perspectives and we're including the voices of the disabled community, um, you know, in all of these different, you know, environments and conversations and, you know, all everywhere, really, that's what's so important. Um, and I think too, there's a lot that can be done as far as like, you know, learning more on your own and personal growth. Um, Alice Wong is a disability activist, and she's she's also an author. Um, and she has a book out called um, I think it's. Now I'm trying to I'm looking over at my bookshelf, um, trying to remember what it's called. But it's basically a collection of firsthand experiences that were written by disabled people. So they're sharing their experiences. I think it's called Invisible Disabilities, and I can I can follow up disability. with that. Disability visibility. There we go. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
I was, it was right there at, the, at my brain and I just couldn't get there. Um, but, but yes, um, that, that book is wonderful. And then it provides some more, I would say, you know, really realistic experiences of, um, in, you know, of what each of these individuals have had as far as being disabled and, um, and what that looks like. And that's a good place to begin. There's lots of other great information and other books out there as well. Um, Simi Linton is another disability activist and scholar, and she wrote a book called, I think it's called Claiming, um, Claiming Knowledge. And, you know, there's all sorts of really great, you know, really strong um, writers and scholars out there. But really just getting a sense of the movement in general and how that feeds into accessibility. There's there's just such a a, a dark history of disability within um, I would say the world. And then it's really about, you know, we can't go back and rectify that, but we do need to learn those lessons. Um, not necessarily because we look at history as a, a way of, you know, trying to learn from the past and not, you know, make those same mistakes again. I think that's pretty, you know, rote saying that we often see with history, but it's really about using that historical context to make better decisions moving forward. And then to understand that there is often trauma and things like that associated with disability. And how can we move forward collectively to break that down into something that's a little more tangible and, um, something that people can, you know, begin to talk about and feel comfortable with. Thank you so much. I just, I just looked up both those books and saved them as a, as an item in my uh, inventory. So I appreciate you sharing some <laughs> next welcome. steps for myself. Cause I'm also trying to learn from you and everyone else had had the opportunity to talk to. So thank you. I'm curious uh, for our listeners, where can our listeners connect with you uh, and learn more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me It's just at Katie Grinnell, PhD, I think is my name in LinkedIn. Um, I'm also, as I mentioned before, I work at Anthology. So, you know, typically we have all sorts of really great opportunities to do thought leadership and things like that with Anthology. Um, so you can find me there, you know, doing different types of blog posts and webinars and things like that. Um, but I should also say, Shiro, that, you know, I, there is no, like, there is no finite amount of knowledge that one can have about disability and accessibility. And my experiences are very different from others. And I have a lifetime ahead of me to continue to learn. And I, I, I'm not an expert by any means. I, I like to just think of myself as somebody that, um, has the lived experience of, you know, someone who is disabled. And I've been fortunate enough to actually infuse that into what I do with my work and we'll continue to do that forever. <laughs> Thank you so much, Katie. That's, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about something that's probably not, you know, super, super comfortable, but you know, let's get uncomfortable. I think that was your message yes. that I yes. really took away with. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, thank you so much, Shiro. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. We'll have another great episode on accessibility coming up shortly. And of course, if you are looking for an updated interactive map, virtual tour, or events calendar solution that are all digitally accessible and meet standards, please reach out to concept3d.com. Thanks everyone. Thank you.